0: The views and opinions expressed during Eye on the Triangle do not represent WKNC or the student media. Your dial is currently tuned to Eye on the Triangle at WKNC 88.1. Thanks for listening. Aaron Kling with WKNC 88.1's Eye in the Triangle, and tonight I'm speaking with the video essayist Jacob Geller. Jacob Geller often explores the medium of video games through the lens of architecture, politics, and art. Jacob, good to
1: have you back. I'm so glad to be here. You know, I realized when you asked me to be on the show that the last time we recorded was still in quarantine, even though it feels like it was
0: a lifetime ago. It's been a long,
1: hard year, but this was really fun the first time, and I'm
0: happy to be back. Considering the fact that the vaccine is probably coming out in late spring, early summer, by current projections, we have many months of quarantine to look forward to. (laughs) I I can't wait. And what's a good task to do during quarantine? Playing video games is often pretty good. It keeps you distant from other people. It means that you don't necessarily have to go out as much, and it can be really entertaining if you happen to be into that sort of thing. And I actually brought you on here to talk about some aspects of games. Can you explain what a video essayist does? Sure. So it's a very
1: unique job and one that I feel very lucky to have found myself in. Uh, But what I do is take topics that I'm really interested in. I kind of typically end up connecting several of them together write an essay about them, and then make that essay into a video by kind of reading it and adding visual language, whether that's me recorded or games and often music. And then I put it up on YouTube and people watch it and sometimes pay me. There are many video essayists. A lot of them talk about movies or just kind of politics straight up or lots of different things. But personally, I have combined my lifelong love of video games with my obsession with throwing video games into the discussion of the larger art world. For so long, video games have been talked about by gamers and no one else in their own context. And I think that's kind of boring. What I try to do is connect games to novels, to theories about art, to just different mediums like they could have really interesting conversation with, but just haven't got the
0: chance to yet. On the subject of connections, I know that one of your more recent videos was comparing Resident Evil 4 to the art restoration process, specifically in regards to Resident Evil 4 is kind of an older game, and how individuals in the community, but also in the actual professional world, have tried to resurrect aspects of Resident Evil's graphics and, and gameplay into the modern age. Do you want to talk more about that? Sure. So with lots of games, there are really passionate modding
1: communities, which means that people who make their own changes to the game outside of the official release, and sometimes when they're old games, people want them to be updated to our contemporary standards of graphics or gameplay or whatever. And so they set themselves to the task of kind of re-beautifying something because a game that was made 15 years ago looks <laughs> much worse generally than a game that would come out today. And when I see that process and especially the passion that people have it reminds me of painting restoration and art restoration which is something where a painting might have been left out or kind of let to decay for many years and then there's a professional who comes in who cleans it up and can repaint over the broken parts and take off damaged sections and allow you to see that art with new eyes. So I found this really fascinating connection between modding, which seems like this kind of very nerdy, very insular thing, and the more beautiful process of art
0: restoration. And you've equated games quite a bit with art, and what you've just discussed during art restoration, or, or kind of how communities form around it and, and take a look at what's inside. I did want to discuss politics of games as well. Are games separable as works of art from politics? (laughs) Well, you ask a huge question,
1: Aaron, but I think it's good because I have a philosophy about art and games and politics, which is certainly not something I've made up, but I've found helpful in kind of guiding how I think about this sort of thing, which is that games don't spontaneously exist and art doesn't spontaneously exist. They are always made by people those people in a political world, you know, I I really don't think any of us can say that our life is unaffected by politics. And so when you live in that world, I think you inevitably put that into what you're creating, that could be intentional, you could be, you know, overtly creating political art, or you could just be making something abstract. But even then, I think the, the material conditions that you are living under affect your art. And I think those are inherently political. And so to answer your question, yes, video games are political. And I
0: don't think it's possible to separate the two issues. For our listeners, I want to make it clear that games often can take a very long time to develop, almost half a decade in some longer cycle developments. What this means is that with so many people with so many opinions, and no person can exist without having an opinion, Having no opinion itself is a political opinion. That's just kind of the funny way it works, is that these ideas do seep into the game itself. And not necessarily in a negative way, not necessarily in a deliberate way, but enough that it can change how the game comes across and, of course, how players interact with the game. And this is somewhat unique. Compared to, let's say, film or books, which games themselves do try to emulate at times, that person actually does not look at a character and say, I hope they do or they should do. Instead, they look at a character, usually their own character, and say, I have to do, I need to do, things like that. So when you're so enmeshed in this character, it's often interesting to see how you relate to what's going on in the game. Jacob, do you have any particular examples of that? it's a great point and i think about sometimes there's
1: almost an unwilling empathy that that we have to have when we're playing a game and controlling a character that even if you fully disagree with the actions the character in the game is making because you're controlling them you are more connected to them and their actions than in almost any other medium. And so something that comes to mind when we're talking about this is the Call of Duty series, which is a very popular military series and one in which the protagonists, the people you're controlling often make decisions that I find truly objectionable, but because you're controlling them it it kind of feels like you're taking part in it and it It lives in this very weird space, and one that I have very complicated feelings about. When you say taking part in, could you give us any examples? Sure. So there's an infamous Call of Duty level uh, from the game, Call of Duty Modern Warfare 2, which is almost a decade old at this point, I think. And the mission is called No Russian. And what happens in that mission is that you're supposed to be convincing a rogue group of terrorists that you're one of them. And so they make you take part in a massacre where you, along with the rest of the terrorists, kind of a bunch of innocent people. And it's truly horrible. And it's supposed to be truly horrible. You know, I want to get that the game is not endorsing this sort of action. But by making you take part in it, it kind of feels like they're throwing you into that situation and they're kind of asking you to empathize with the strategies that the military in that game is using. No Russian is a mission that any gamers who were paying attention in 2010 will remember because it created this huge media firestorm of like, oh my gosh, is, is Call of Duty kill innocent people? But that kind of ideology... I think it has continued through the series, and it might not be quite as overt, but even in the games that are released in 2019, 2020, they have scenes that are supposed to make you uncomfortable, and they do. I kind of question what they're accomplishing by doing that.
0: No Russian is is very interesting, and it did spark that firestorm because there's often been a hard eye put on video gaming for its relation to violence and for player's agency involved in violence I think that No Russian actually, while on the surface, is incredibly brutal and horrific. It does stand out differently from the medium in that it is very on rails. And when I say on rails, I mean that it plays a lot like those kind of slower paced theme park rides. You've probably seen those at Disneyland. It's a small world shuttling you very, very slowly through an environment witnessing horrific things happening. Well, the game, on its surface, is saying that you have to open fire on the civilians. You can actually fire over their heads, or you could not fire at all. You could just walk alongside the rest of these awful men who are doing what they're doing. None of this changes what happens, especially towards the end. None of this changes any of the events there. And of course, if you try to shoot the other terrorists around you, thinking this is wrong and this isn't what my character should do or what I as a player want to do, that itself is considered a game over. It's just a very interesting way that your agency is for this moment in the game bent or pulled away from you so the game can tell the story that it wants to tell before returning an amount of control right and i think it's interesting that
1: while no russian was considered an explicit scene and it might be upsetting and if you don't play it you can actually skip it but then they've gone on to have missions in which your character is ostensibly doing the right thing and then those I think that the actions are maybe even by way of subversion more damaging and more objectionable because they're painted in a much more heroic light so for instance in the names are very confusing here call of duty modern warfare 2 came out 10 years ago call of duty modern warfare was a game that came out last year don't ask me to explain that it's a marketing thing they pull the numbers off to give you a fresh experience it's a it is a marketing thing so in that one there's a mission called clean house and that mission is you going through a suburban house in the uk and it's one of these houses where it turns out that there is a terrorist cell that was actively working in the middle of a city and so you are british forces and you go through and you covertly take them out and in that mission they present many scenes that kind of seem moralistic in one way or another like for instance they're going through and they're ends and if any man picks up a gun you shoot them and that's fine that's good and sometimes there are women that pick up guns And if you shoot them, that's also fine. There's no problem. One time there's a woman holding a baby and the baby's crying. If you shoot the baby, then the mission is over. And it's this very weird thing where they're painting, you know, it's like you're the character and you're doing the right thing to get through this mission. But when you put that mission in context of our modern day and what we know, no knock raids, for instance, and how that appears to people who have their house being no-knock rated, where seemingly just armed men are kicking down their door for no reason, I find it really hard to take that we're the good guys going through this house, killing all these people sneakily before they even respond. And of course, in the game, it justifies it all by saying, no, look, they were terrorists, it's good that you did all this. But on some level, I feel that it's endorsing a no-knock raid because you do it in the game and you're so professional when you do it that then that becomes your mental picture of this and we know in real life in context of the events of this summer that that is not how
0: these things often go no russian actually plugs into this very very well Uh, in a lot of call of duties they will show an atrocity earlier in your experience if it was a, a movie, it would be towards the very beginning, kind of an establishing a sequence. In the game, it's usually in, I want to say, the maybe first 15, 20, 30 minutes, Jacob? Mm-hmm. Which, for a game, is very, very early. These atrocities, they they kind of prime you. They set you up to understand that this is an asymmetrical conflict with individuals who desperately want to harm the world, often a world that is culturally distinct from theirs, which is notable, And through that, you say, okay, the only way that we can oppose an enemy that lurks in the shadows, that we cannot engage in open, just ground, is to do these no-knock raids, is to do kind of blindsiding attacks. And, of course, surprise attacks have been a component of warfare for a long, long time. But I think with clean house, it does take a hard turn into the domestic. You're no longer firing over bullet and bloodstained streets or in wreckages. You're fighting over dining room tables. You're fighting around granite countertops, near sofas, or past stair railings, which, especially the railings that I saw in Clean House, really evoke railings that I've seen in my childhood at Friend's House or in houses that my parents have owned at any given time. And I think that by seating it there... It really changes the rules of engagement, which is what Call of Duty wants to do. It wants to shock, and it wants to transplant warfare into places that you wouldn't necessarily expect. It also means something at the same time, right? And I think
1: it's it's important to give the developers credit in that they knew this. They knew that we are used, to, when we play these games, to instances like Battlefield and Trenches and kind of unnamed foreign countries and so they put something like this in in an environment that we're familiar with but there's a complicated sort of politics that goes on with call of duty which is is something that i spent altogether too long thinking about and made into a video last year called does call of duty believe in anything and that's this narrative of the great man the great individual that often We're playing characters in these games who are their boots on the ground, you know, and have to make hard decisions. And the game almost always endorses those decisions. It's a hard decision to go into a house in a domestic town and shoot people. But it's good that the characters did that, the game tells us, because we found information that led to stopping terrorism or whatever. They claim that their games are not political this is the weird thing the weird kind of doublethink is that if you ask the developer is your game political they say it's not we're just representing warfare these are just the actions that real forces go through on the ground and we want to give players an accurate picture of that but by the way they paint those situations and especially by the way they let you control them, they are kind of endorsing method of interaction these kind of incredibly professional but incredibly lethal engagements become the picture of how war should be done seemingly and it makes me very uncomfortable because i would almost more if call of duty just said this is our position they would say this is our position we think that the troops on the ground are the ones who can make the smartest decisions and that's why we base our game around them But they don't say that they say we don't have any beliefs. We're just putting this out there, when in fact that's impossible. <laughs> that's not how how fiction works. And so then you get this insidious propaganda. And I hate to go that far, but also I do just genuinely believe that is what it is, whether they know it or not. Call of Duty games function as a sort of military propaganda. Yes,
0: I'm sure you're aware that propaganda is a hard call to make, of course. The game is ostensibly shipped for entertainment purposes, and the game is intended to amuse and keep its audience engaged. And often these campaigns, these single-player narrative campaigns, the movie aspect of them, are considered sort of a prelude or, or an introduction to the game's real selling point, and that is uh, online, competitive, kind of sports-like interactions. Uh, but it's still there. It's still present. It's almost the trailer to draw you in. I also want to narrow in on your statement of they want to portray an accurate representation of warfare, right? Warfare, of course, is violent. We've known this. It's been written about for hundreds and hundreds of years, about as long as humanity has had warfare. The question is, is warfare just violence and tactical insertions and and careful, like, fraught walks through enemy territory? In many cases, I've heard that warfare is a lot of sitting, a lot of waiting. A lot of digging toilets and packaging meals. Does Call of Duty represent these? It doesn't. And a bizarre thing, there are many deployed troops who
1: spend a huge amount of time playing Call of Duty because their day-to-day lives do not look like the situations that Call of Duty is depicting. It's this thing where they create an idea of what warfare is. That then seems to be reinforced by the people they're talking to, even if that's not accurate. And of course, there are logistical reasons for this. It would not sell a billion dollars worth of copies if you had a game where you had to sit in an uncomfortable base and eat crappy food for months on end. And actually, although there have been games made about the civilian side affair, which is not remotely empowering and is incredibly traumatic. Those games don't sell the same numbers because I I think ultimately people want their games to be power fantasies. And I think games can be so much more than that. But when it comes to the blockbusters, that's still kind of what we're stuck
0: on. So why? Why then? Why this desire to peel the politics out of a game that is inherently political? Why a desire to not engage with any of that? Uh, Down to their public-facing marketing. This isn't something you have to dig your way to get to they're very very open about this and more and more large developers uh, ubisoft activision have gone on record saying our games aren't political our games are works of entertainment what's the point you know i think they're scared and it makes sense
1: to me because they need to sell their games and unfortunately a large percentage of people who play games lead seem to take offense at the notion that the game is political or the game might be trying to teach them something or anything like that and it's a conversation that's gone on for as long as art has existed people complaining that politics are being brought into comic books even though the first comic books were made by by Jews who were kind of writing power fantasies to escape the oppression they were under, or their you know, feminists are bringing politics into movies, even though movies had been operating under the politics of misogyny for many years and just not been criticized. I think what these developers are worried about is more that the politics that are already in their game will be pointed out and criticized by someone like me. And while I understand that from a business standpoint, I think it's really unfortunate because I think that art that is truthful with itself about what it's trying to do has the potential to be much more powerful.
0: I also think it represents a very interesting relationship with their customer base. I'm pretty sure that individuals who want to play Call of Duty often just want to get to the multiplayer, often just want to go out and have a really good time. I wonder why they would make a show of of hiding politics from customers that, and this is no offense to the customers, they just probably don't really care. They want to have a good time. I mean, I think that is exactly
1: why, that for many people, especially over the past several years, Thinking about politics is exhausting. It's not something fun. It's not something that you want to do. And when you view games as an escapist medium, you don't want to interact with the real-life problems that you might be facing. And again, I understand that impulse. It's not something foreign to me, but I I just don't think you can. I don't think that's how art works. Yeah,
0: yeah. Well, I was wondering if you'd be willing to move past call of duty and, and talk about a game that while not itself deliberately political or through marketing i should say intended to be political does wear a lot of its politics on its sleeve you mentioned a great appreciation for final fantasy 7 this is one of my
1: favorite games of this year is a remake of the game final fantasy 7 which was originally a game that came out over 20 years ago and i had played one 20 20- years ago and I, I wasn't really familiar with the story and so I was truly shocked when the first mission in this game is essentially blowing up a version of a coal processing plant that the characters that you play as are kind of ego terrorists that they are taking action against a giant oppressive energy company in an effort to save the earth. This would have been shocking, you know, if this was just a game that came out this year. But what I found even more surprising about it is that this was also the plot of the original game, which came out in the 90s. It was really you know, pleasantly surprising to me to have this kind of experience where a game did seem to be aware
0: of its own politics and
1: did kind of seem to, to stand for something.
0: So does the game overtly engage with ideas of of, I guess, uh, ecological damage or devastation? Or does it engage with the ideas of a changing environment?
1: So the context of the game Final Fantasy VII, at least the beginning of it, is you're in a giant city called Midgar. And Midgar is controlled by an energy company. It's The whole city is kind of surrounded by these giant reactors. And as one of the characters says in the very beginning of the game, those reactors are quite literally sucking the life out of the planet. kind of a fantasy game, and so they can afford to get more literal with their analogies. And so what you do in that game is you try to wrestle back control from this enormously powerful energy company because they are both causing you and your friends to live in poverty and live in oppression and because they are harming the Earth, and you feel
0: that it's just the responsible thing to do to fight back. How does the game engage with that? How does it really show what it's like fighting against a power structure like that?
1: Well, it has a beautifully obvious visual metaphor, which is that the city of Midgar is built just like two enormous layers on top of each other. One of the characters calls the Great Rotting Pizza which is that there's a layer up top which all the rich people live on and it's great and they've all got houses and they kind of have advanced technology and all that but then you and and almost all the other characters you interact with in the game live below that layer in this kind of basement where the sun is almost completely blocked out and you live amidst all the pollution of these reactors and people are still living their lives but it's clear that their material conditions are fundamentally worse because of this energy company and because of the kind of powerful elite that live above them i've also talked about this in a video and i think great parallel piece of art is the movie parasite which came out last year which has a very rich family living high up, kind of oblivious to issues that the poor are facing, and a very poor family that literally lives in a basement. And you have this kind of interaction high and low of
0: powerful and oppressed. So Final Fantasy VII, the original game, came out in, I want to say, the early, maybe mid-90s. A lot of games since have taken that metaphor and used it in many, many different capacities. I know that Deus Ex, Human Revolution, a game about corporations and the the changing of the human body. Later on in the game you go to a city called Hengsha which also has the exact same visual metaphor of low and high, an entire district rising above a, a smaller or lower district that contains poorer and more desperate individuals. I know that Cyberpunk Media Ghost Runner is a recent game that came out has depicted if you're poor you're on the bottom and if you're rich you're on the top. Visual vertical metaphor as you said. But how does a player engage with this? You're not just watching this. It could just be it could be a video or it could be a book. You could read about it described. What's it like actually being in there? Yes. So
1: you're a mercenary. You're in it for the money. But as the game goes on, you spend more time with these group of people, and you kind of see how their lives are affected by this. And and you know as As you become friends with these people, it's impossible to ignore that all of them are suffering in one way or another because they live in this incredibly oppressive hierarchical system. And so it kind of lets the player be convinced at the same time that it lets the main character be convinced. And so uh, at the beginning, while you might just be playing because the game looks pretty and it has good music and flashy sound effects... By the end, much like the character who's been converted, I was really converted to the cause of the people fighting and found it very compelling how they were able to weave this story through your interactions with others.
0: And how would those interactions look? What about the game pulls you in?
1: Well, for instance, there's a character named Aerith, who's very famous if you've paid attention to <laughs> any any Final Fantasy media, because she's, she's kind of the love interest for the game, but is very capable and very involved in her own right. And while your character, whose name is Cloud, is kind of disaffected, Aerith is incredibly involved with her community, and you go around with her as you see her, like, providing for an orphanage or clearing out dangerous monsters from the rubble, because again, it is a fantasy game and you do fight stuff. You see how much she cares about the community. And I think through that, sometimes they tell you, they're just like cloud, you should care about this more. But I also think that there is just an inherent power in spending time around a community that's both very hopeful and very kind and also very clearly damaged by the conditions they're living under.
0: It's an effective mechanism, really. Aerith is the individual that Cloud is interested in, and you, as the player who inhabit Cloud, he's basically your perspective and how you view the setting and view the world. You are meant to, by the writing, care about Aerith. And therefore, Aerith's cares, Aerith's objectives, and, and what she wants to accomplish are intended to become your cares and objectives because it's what Cloud wants for Aerith.
1: It doesn't hurt that they make Aerith just incredibly funny and charming and, you know, they want you to have a crush on this character. And so it's, it might be through selfish reasons at first that you just like the cute girl that you're walking around with. But ultimately, you
0: know, I think that Cloud does become a true believer in the cause. Speaking of becoming a true believer, Cloud starts out as being a mercenary whose primary focus is, is money, right? Yeah, that's right. In a setting primarily driven by energy and industry, where resource and money is often the objective, right?
1: Yeah, they really play on this, both both in our real life, we're driven by money, and also in game, Goal is often just level up, get stronger, get richer.
0: And they're trying to pull you towards, well, sure, you're going to want to do all these. It's a part of what you're going to be doing and what you're going to be deriving entertainment from. That would be the core loop of the game. But also, how to drive you forward for reasons besides, I want the number that is low to become a high number, which is, I guess, one of the most basic ways that a game can entertain its player. I've talked
1: about all games being inherently political. On some base level, I think it is just inherently satisfying to see a number go up. Going from low to high is fun. But I also think it is kind of a valid point of criticism. That so many games play into our kind of capitalistic form of success, that you know you're winning the game, you know you're doing well, when you are the richest character, or the, the character that wields the most power or any of that. And while that certainly happens in Final Fantasy, you know, you do get much more powerful, find the, the much more convincing part of the game is the relationships that you build with other people. And ultimately, that's what I remember about the game, not not simply my numbers getting higher.
0: And making that number go up is so old in the medium. Before we even had stories in games, actual fully voice acted, motion capped, written stories that can last for hours that the characters engaging with or the players engaging with. We had games that had uh, challenges of reflexes or, or or skill, where the objective was, I start at zero, I want to end at who knows, but as high as I can get it. Those dominated the arcades back in the day.
1: So recently, I read a fascinating book on the game Missile Command, which is a very old arcade cabinet and one that's Incredibly rudimentary in its kind of form of interaction, where you play a base and there are little pixelated missiles coming down at you, and you try to shoot those missiles before they hit you. That's the whole game, and really, it's just kind of clicking on missiles in the sky. But in the book, it goes into the kind of history of this game's creation, and in fact, the creator of that game was really haunted by Cold War and felt that at well, you know we might be facing. A hail of missiles and would hopefully be able to defend against them but ultimately missile command always ends with you getting hit by a missile of of one kind or another it's interesting to think about these very old games which we look at now and we're like oh my gosh look how basic they are look how look how limited they are in their scope but even then there were efforts by people to make kind of resonant pieces of art
0: I think it can be stressed that the reason why gaming can interface with, with politics, why gaming can interface with larger ideas than, than just what you're doing, not to downplay the actual like core loops of games. It's, it's why we buy them in the first place. It's why we consume them in many cases. But even before all of that, when graphics were very, very simple, when it was usually just collections of, uh, of pixels and colors on the screen, there were people trying to say something. Or people who are trying to demonstrate something. And I think the fact that Missile Command uh doesn't ever end and and does well I guess I guess it does end. Its only end is in the complete extermination of everything you were trying to protect in the first place. I think that speaks to to what the medium can communicate. If you were to see an exchange of nuclear missiles in a movie, it would be horrifying. But there also wouldn't be any kind of story to tell. There wouldn't really be Anything to say except for something we already understand, uh, being nuked is a very uncomfortable and awkward situation. <laughs> it's very awkward. In Missile Command, you you are there with your tiny collection of buildings and your and your little turret that has a very, very limited amount of ammunition, trying to protect everything around you from becoming a glowing crater, so to speak. And even with such small resources, it communicates that effectively. I think you have played the game Dwarf Fortress. Oh, it wasn't Dwarf Fortress that I had played. It was RimWorld, which is heavily inspired by and based off of Dwarf Fortress. I'm curious to kind of hear about
1: this, because these games don't have complicated uh, graphic systems in the same way I think of Call of Duty having, right? The humans look very realistic and the faces are beautifully animated and all that. And yet, they still manage to tell really compelling and, I think, political
0: stories, right? So RimWorld, it's a part of a type of gaming that has taken narrative and made it procedural. As in, no one has said, I'm going to write a story with a beginning and an ending, and then take us from point A to point B. And, And many games do have branches. You can go from point A to point C to point D, depending on how wide or narrow the game is, and neither of which are necessarily good or bad under themselves. I can't stress that enough. But RimWorld is extremely open and the graphics are very, very simple. You're playing with the developer in his notes called Paper Dolls, these cutouts of characters that don't particularly animate, even when they're like fighting to the death with other versions of themselves, they are just bumping into each other, like somebody just kind of nudging a, a toy car against a toy car as a child, despite all of that, if, if you can put yourself in, in the situation, you are building a community of people. And the way the game expresses conflicts and violence and all of that is often senseless, but it's up to you as a player to make sense of it. Have you ever uh, kind of experienced any kind of procedural narrative in your time, Jacob? Yeah, I mean, I think an
1: orthodox version of this, but one that probably a lot of people have experienced, is something like The Sims, where those games don't have defined narratives as such, but you kind of create one through your interaction sim city you might be trying to build a city center but you just can't get all the roads to line up and so your city has just horrible traffic all of the time and maybe not an ideal way of playing but it becomes the story of your city you know not one that was programmed in one that exists through your failure of infrastructure or in the sims you might have a character who i don't know they fall asleep all the time but they also want to be a master painter and so their life is torn wanting to follow their artistic pursuits and wanting to just constantly be in bed and those two traits might be picked by a cooter, but they still manage to
0: form a narrative that we find compelling and maybe even relate to. Even with no defined real ending, I mean, how does SimCity necessarily end? The city grows infinitely, right? You get bored and you press the alien attack button. (laughs) Uh, But these games which are open-ended, they still have things to say, despite not actually having a storyline that starts and finishes world, for example, kind of makes you renegotiate what your morality and comfort is. In many cases, you might get a signal from somebody who is being chased by people who mean to do them harm, and you could rescue them and, and possibly incorporate them into your civilization. But what if of the seven people who live, farm, work, and, and eat in your settlement, five of them have contracted malaria? I probably don't need to tell my audience that malaria is... A pretty dangerous disease. So do you take your remaining two healthy people who aren't bedridden and try to fend off an attack of seven people? Or do you effectively leave this person to die? Or perhaps one of your colonists has taken a bullet to the lung and that lung is now blown out. And now you see this colonist spending every single waking day suffering from lacking a major organ. But there is a source of organs out there. Everyone has two lungs. That means if you manage to capture one of the Raiders, do you take one of their lungs to make the person that you really care for feel better to improve their standard of life while doing what is an unthinkably almost horror movie level of of atrocity to this one person? And do you justify by saying, well, they came here to uh, pillage our our lands and, and attack our people. We're the defenders. We deserve to maybe get something back from this. I think that the. Games that obviously previously in the no Call of Duty and Final Fantasy Seven are both
1: games that they really have a narrative and it kind of goes to you of how much you internalize that narrative, how much you would with it. And games like this, it really seems like you're learning uncomfortable truths about yourself. You Know that maybe the game makers did want you to think something, maybe they didn't, but by putting you in these situations where there's not really a right answer, also the game doesn't seem to endorse one method of action or another, You have to guess, okay, am am I a person who would do this in a SimCity context? Am I going to move all of the affluent people in my city out to the suburbs? Is that something that I want to do? Do I think that's ethical? Or in RimWorld, am I going to start an organ harvesting farm? And these are questions that you can watch movies on, you can read books. They can kind of replace you in these situations. But in games, it is much more visceral that suddenly you have to make a choice And those choices are often enacting politics in these games' worlds. And you might think you would act one way, but when push comes to shove, you end up going
0: the other. Exactly. And it's important to realize that through their mechanics, through their systems, these games don't just shrug at your behavior. RimWorld doesn't wag its finger at you, but when you pull an organ out of somebody every single one of your colonists who is an internally diagnosed uh, psychopath or sociopath they feel awful they feel like monsters for quite a period of time and that feeling of monstrousness can actually cause them to have catatonic breakdowns to make them binge eat to make them wander away or even to make them give up on your settlement and try to find a, a more moral place to live if push comes to shove and SimCity, even though it is a game about architecture and city planning, where you don't necessarily have to worry about the individual lives of the people, there's a comment there, isn't there? It's saying that, well, no city is, is necessarily built to be harmful, necessarily, but once the roads are placed, and once subdivisions are placed in some areas, perhaps next to a heavy metal industrial plant, or perhaps next to a comfortable... Uh, kind of green space with lots of commercial districts, things do change. People's livelihoods change, and and some people are, are forced to live in areas that they don't want to live in, simply because maybe planning wasn't as strong as it could be from the get-go. When you are playing SimCity, you're
1: forced to kind of reckon with those thoughts. You know, it's easy for me to say, isn't it dumb that the baseball stadium takes up so much more room than the homeless shelters? That is, I, I am very comfortable making that scene. But when you throw me into the position of city planner and say, hey, what are you going to do now? SimCity is not a
0: perfect approximation of reality, but it does force you to kind of reckon with your ideology. Yeah, I've always found SimCity, myself at least, as a very depressing game. I'm given a large, unspoiled natural area that I then say I'm going to build a wonderful city within. But I always know how the story ends every time I boot the game up. I'm going to get maybe nine, ten hours in, or or three days of work. I'm going to lean back and, and look at my labor and see a pollution-stricken mobile parking lot where nobody really has access to healthcare. Because all the ambulances can't get three feet without being immediately stuck in crippling gridlock. It is almost like this is a thing you have to study to know how to do effectively. <laughs> so, to close us out, what are politics and games? What is the medium and how it relates to our understanding of the world? <laughs> oh, I'm sure I'll be able to sum this up in one or two sentences.
1: You know, I think what I want people to come away from this thinking about is not at all, maybe a little bit. I don't want you to think that reckoning with politics means that you have to take your favorite games and realize why they're bad. That's not what I'm here to do. I don't want to ruin people's fun. And I do think it's important to have something you can escape to. And for many, that might be a military simulator. But I do just want you to think about the ways that these things might be affecting your view of the world, whether you realize it or not. How many dozens of hours can you spend in a fantasy world before its ideas kind of start rubbing off on your perception of reality? This isn't an argument about how video games make you violent or how they make you dumber, but in the way that we interact with art, art also interacts with us. And it has an ability to shape the way we see the world. And sometimes I think these can be really positive ways. And sometimes I think they can be harmful. And so I just want people to be more aware of that. And don't think that you're shutting off your brain whenever you start to play something, because whether you like it or not, that thing is going to affect you in
0: some way. Fantastic, yeah. I really think that we've lost a lot of time and energy in the mire around violence within video games i think that it's perfectly a good area to look at and definitely that's a question violence itself is also political we've probably basically hammered this into our audience's head at this point the idea that anything you could possibly do anything you could possibly say has some fundamental message about how the world works even if that means light switches turn lights on it can be as basic as that but i think there's so much more going on inside games that don't necessarily relate to that loop of violence, to that way of exploring your world. I think a lot of it can speak to how people view the natural world, how people view architecture, how cities are constructed, what is considered beautiful and what is considered ugly. And and not just in people, but also in the environments that people create. Because whenever we create anything, whenever human beings set about to make something, we leave our mark on it and that mark could be the mark of a chisel or it could be the mark of of a writer or it could be the mark of a large series of interconnected parts each with their own beliefs about things ubisoft and i can't necessarily say too many positive things about ubisoft considering how things have played out for them in the last few months they often said that their games were created by a group of people with a diverse series of opinions and beliefs And I think that is probably one of the easiest things you can say about literally anything that is made by people. But I think that you also have to engage with that as a concept. What were those beliefs? Who are these people and how has it come out in the medium that you're currently interacting with?
1: I I couldn't agree more.
0: Jacob, do you have any future videos that people can look forward to on your YouTube channel?
1: Oh, sure. I mean, I think right around the time that this airs, I'll have a new video out called The Shape of Infinity, which is about a whole bunch of artists trying to depict infinity in different ways, whether by designing it into a game or etching it or writing it down one number at a time. It's a very weird video, but one that I'm really proud of. So my YouTube channel is just called Jacob Geller. You can go there, you can watch everything that I've made. And hopefully if you like the conversation we had here, you'll find some more ground
0: with those videos. Jacob Geller, thank you so much for coming out. Oh, my pleasure. All right, folks, you know the drill. I'm Aaron Kling with WKNC's 88.1 I on the Triangle. I just finished talking with Jacob Geller about how games interact with politics, how games shape the views of their players, and how the medium can sometimes differ from other mediums that we've seen in the past. Good night, everybody. Thank you so much.